Would you open your Bibles now, please, to the last section of Paul's first epistle to Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 6. We're going to be reading this morning 1 Timothy chapter 6, beginning with verse 11, and reading all the way to the end of the chapter and the end of the book to verse 21. 1 Timothy 6, verses 11 through 21. And let's listen now to the inspired word of God. But you, O man of God, flee these things and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, gentleness, Fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on eternal life to which you were also called and have confessed the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I urge you in the sight of God who gives life to all things and before Christ Jesus who witnessed the good confession before Pontius Pilate, that you keep this commandment without spot, blameless, until our Lord Jesus Christ's appearing, which he will manifest in his own time, he who is the blessed and only potentate, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, dwelling in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see, to whom be honor and everlasting power. Amen. Command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty, nor to trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God, who gives us richly all things to enjoy. Let them do good, that they be rich in good works, ready to give, willing to share, storing up for themselves a good foundation for the time to come that they may lay hold on eternal life. O Timothy, guard what was committed to your trust, avoiding the profane and idle babblings and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. By professing it, some have strayed concerning the faith. Grace be with you. Amen. Here ends our reading from God's perfect word. This morning we uh, begin the uh, last sermon in our series on the shape of the church as Paul has described uh, what that shape ought to be in this, his epistle, his first epistle to Timothy. I want to begin by uh, reminding us of that, that this entire epistle then, was written 
in time and space by the Apostle Paul, who's a prisoner uh, uh, in Rome, in house imprisonment in Rome. That's what's described in the last chapter of the Acts of the Apostle. And he's writing to Timothy, Timothy, uh, his disciple, and who is now the pastor and the preacher at the church in Ephesus. Okay, And so that, just to put these words in the big picture in, into context uh, for us, these are uh, Paul's uh, parting words in this letter to his beloved disciple. And it's important to notice that in them, he turns to Timothy with even more intimacy and urgency than he has throughout the letter. Interesting to note, verse 11, Paul says, But you, O man of God, always reminding of Timothy, of who he was. I remember in my last uh, pastorate, the uh, man that we called to be the uh, last associate pastor there uh, under me uh, came straight from seminary uh, into our church. Well, I guess he was called as an assistant first. Uh, but I remember uh, he, he never said anything about it, but I could tell he noticed right away that uh, beginning the next Monday mornings, you know, we had staff meetings on Monday, Monday morning, uh, but every time I'd see him, I'd say, hello, pastor, because he wasn't used to being called pastor. And he oh, yeah, I'm a pa-. it's important to be reminded of who we are. And Paul is reminding Timothy here, you, O man of God, that is your identity. You are, first and foremost, a man of God. It, it expresses a certain uh, amount of, of uh, intimacy, it seems to me, but also urgency. Look at the 20th verse. Oh, Timothy. I hate the translations that leave out little words like oh. I, anybody here not know what the word oh means? I, I don't, the translators, uh, I'm just afraid they get pretty arrogant sometimes and, and their desire to sound up to date, they leave out little Bible war, words. They don't like the word behold. You never heard the expression, lo and behold? You don't know what it means? Of course you know what it means. It's just that those translators don't like that word, I guess. Anyway, oh, Timothy, guard what was committed to you. You see, you, you, you sense there, uh, don't you, not only the intimacy, Paul's closeness uh, to Timothy, but his urgency, as if Paul was saying to Timothy, now, I've written all these things to you. Hear what I've said. Understand what I've said. Remember what I've said. And obey what I've said. If you obey what I have said, you will be obeying my God and your God. And so as the apostle concludes this letter on the shape of the church, seems to me here he gives a very uh, sharp, very incisive, a very picturesque, if I could use that word, summary of what the shape of the church is supposed to be. And he gives what I think you might call uh, a strategy to Timothy for how he should lead that church to be, to have the shape that God has called it 
to be. And so that's what I want to be looking at this morning, the God's strategy for the church of his son. I want you to notice, first of all, what is it? What's the strategy? Okay. What, what are the orders, the marching orders, so to speak? The first one is this. Fight the good fight of faith. Verses 11 and 12. But you, O man of God, flee these things and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on eternal life to which you were also called and have confessed the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Fight the good fight of faith. Not only Christian ministry, but all Christian life is, as a matter of fact, a fight. It's a good fight. It's a battle. Okay? We do not struggle against flesh and blood. But we are in a battle. We are in a war, as a matter of fact. We are the church militant. Okay? We are not the church at rest. We are the church militant here on earth. Remember the very last chapter and the main topic of that very, very famous last chapter of Paul's other letter to the Ephesians. We call it the letter to the Ephesians in 6th chapter. What's the main topic of the last chapter of that letter? Put on the whole armor of God. The armor of God. In this world, we are the church militant. That is to be the shape of the church. We are the hosts of God. We are his army in this world. Paul used many and various metaphors or word pictures for the church to describe what the Christian life is supposed to be. He liked to use the image of athletics. He says, for example, if anyone competes in athletics, he is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. 2 Timothy chapter 2 in verse 5, athletics. The Christian life is like the life of an athlete in that respect. If anyone competes, he's not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. Okay? He likes to compare the Christian life to farming. Okay? Jesus, of course, did the same thing. The parable of the sower and the seed, for example. But Paul says, the hard-working farmer must be the first to partake of the crops. 2 Timothy chapter 2, and verse 6. Athletics, farming. But his most frequent word picture, his most frequent metaphor, figure for the church is the battlefield. The church militant. And so, in that same section from 2 Timothy chapter 2, in the third verse, he says, to Timothy, you therefore must endure hardship as a good soldier. There it is out and out. A good soldier of Jesus Christ. So that last verse there, 2 Timothy 
2, verse 3, you must endure hardship as a soldier of Jesus Christ. That highlights what all these metaphors have in common. What is there in common between an athlete and a farmer and a soldier? Well, he tells us, you must endure hardship. You can't run the race if you don't train to run the race and win the race. You don't reap the crop unless you work to reap the cross, and you will not lay hold on eternal life unless you endure hardship in order to attain it. We are Christian soldiers, and the shape of the church must be military in that respect. The Christian life is no cakewalk. It's not cakewalk. It takes great effort. That's the failure of so much of the this preaching of this prosperity gospel, this feel-good Christianity. It's not that God doesn't want you to feel good, but it's he wants you to do battle now, and he wants you to endure hardship. One preacher used to say there's three kinds of people in this world. There's people that make things happen. There's people that watch things happen. There's people who don't know anything's happening. And the church is full of people who don't know anything's happening. They don't know that we are at war. That's the failure of prosperity Christianity, of your TV preachers and preacheresses. That's their failure. They don't get it. They're not going to say to you, you must endure hardship. They're not going to say that to you. That's the failure of of, of, uh, antinomianism. So So much of the battle has to do with keeping the commandments of God. It has to do with sin. It doesn't have to do with the them. It has to do with the me. See, all those false gospels, okay, that deny that every Christian must work out his salvation and do it with fear and trembling. It's no cakewalk. We are the church militant. And so notice how very much military language there is in just these few final verses of 1 Timothy. Look at verse 11. Okay. But you, O man of God, I think the expression man of God indicates a soldier too. Okay. Man of God, flee these things and pursue righteousness, godliness, and so forth. Pursue. That's a military word. Chase it down. We are... We are an army, and we are on the march, so to speak. We must pursue righteousness. It won't come running into us, running after us. We have to pursue it in order to achieve it. Verse 12, fight the good fight of faith. Well, that's obviously military language. That's clear. Lay hold on eternal life. 
Don't wait for it to be delivered on a, on a platter. Jesus Christ died that you might have eternal life, but you must lay hold of it. You must capture it. You must seize it. You must occupy it. Okay. It goes on in verse 12. Okay. It says, to which you were also called. We say called up. Conscripted. Drafted. Christians have been drafted into this army. We've been sovereignly called by God the Holy Spirit. He has called us. Okay? And not only that, he says, you were also called and have confessed the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. You have been conscripted and you have taken the military oath of office, the oath of loyalty, the confession or the profession. The confession here, he's talking about confess the good confession. He's not talking about confessing sins. Might be better to use the translation profession. You have professed the good profession. When you join a biblical church, you take vows of of membership in which you profess not only your own sin and your faith, in Jesus Christ alone for your justification, but you profess to live a godly life, to seek sanctification. I think that's what he's talking about. He's reminding Timothy, you've been called, but you accepted the call. You confessed it. You professed it. Don't forget that. Somebody wrote a, uh, a, a, a little uh, Sunday school, an adult Sunday school uh, series in the PCA uh, concerning those membership vows. Our membership vows here are almost identical to those. But it was a nice little, uh, it was a, a, an entire course, a Sunday school course for adults. And it was called, what did I say? Because we have a tendency to forget what we said. Okay. That's why there's so much divorce in the country. They forget what they said. And that's why the churches, you know, I don't know what percentage of people join a church and then just leave, but it's a big number. It's a big number. Okay? Remember, Paul says, that confession of faith that you made. But it's a military word. It's, it's an oath of loyalty. You see, verse, uh, verse 13, the military language continues. I urge you. This is the regular Greek word for I command you. It's the word that a commander would use to order his troops. And so some of the translations, as a matter of fact, say charge or command. Those are, those are accurate to say that. Look down to verse 20. Guard what was committed to you. Again, that's a military word. To guard something. Just to prove it, if you were to go to Acts chapter 28 and verse 16, this is the exact same word that is used about that soldier who was chained to Paul in house imprisonment. 
It's the exact same word. It's a military word. And then all the way back to verse 11 again, our first verse for this morning, there's another military word that I didn't mention. But you, O man of God, flee these things. All the worldly desires, the slaves who think that the purpose of Christianity is to be freed from worldly slavery, from the rich who think that the purpose of Christianity is to be secured from not being rich anymore, flee. We are a military church, and we, we have to accomplish what you might call strategic retreats. Not from righteousness, but from sin. You must flee from sin. But flee is a military word. It means retreat. Run away from life in the kingdom of Christ in this world is a battle, and it's a brutal battle. We are surrounded by enemies, the world, the flesh, the devil. Okay. To be sure, the victory is certain. The victory is, is certain. That's what the book of Revelation is all about. It is not about trying to figure out the date of the next return of Christ. It's not about that. It's about the king wins. Okay. Victory is certain. Okay. And the blood of the martyrs is certain. It's a good book if you read it right. Okay. The blood of the martyrs will be shed. And we must enter the kingdom through, must, through much tribulation. But the victor's crown awaits. Okay. Notice it is a fight of faith, verse 12. Fight the good fight of faith. It's a faith fight. He's reminding the slaves again, don't fight for your freedom from slavery. Honor your masters. <gasps> if you get a chance, we saw that last week. If you get a chance to be freed, we'll take it. But if not, what's Paul's exact words? Don't be concerned about it. Don't be concerned just because you're a slave. Don't be concerned with the government you have. Don't be concerned Nero's on the throne. Don't be concerned about that. Christ is on the throne, you know. Same to the rich. Don't make that your gospel. Don't make it your gospel. And being rich is very far from an indication that you are rich in spiritual goods, isn't it? Okay. But the kingdom is not of this world. Remember that discussion? See, Pilate couldn't get that. And Jesus is trying to make it clear. My king, you, you think I can't ask the Father and he would send an army of angels? And Pilate, you... You only have power because it's been given to you from above. But my kingdom, I'm a king. But my kingdom is not of this world. There's a lot of people that want to make the kingdom of God a worldly kingdom. 
It's not of this world. The social gospel is a fake gospel, even if it's a conservative social gospel. That is not the gospel. Paul says twice here. Did you notice twice? Same expression. Lay hold of, not the capital, eternal life. No social gospel, no prosperity gospel, but a redemption gospel. One thing I have desired of the Lord, that will I seek, to dwell in the house of the Lord forever. The man of God must do battle. He must pursue all right. But look what he has to pursue, verse 11. Pursue righteousness, being right with the law of God. The straight and narrow. Okay? Pursue righteousness, godliness. It means piety. It means love and devotion for God. Pursue it. It doesn't happen. You won't feel like it. But of all times when you ought to be pursuing it, that's when you should pursue it most when you don't feel like it. Godliness. Faith. It perhaps means the content of the Christian faith, but most likely it means faithfulness here. Pursue being faithful. And that's why in the very next verse he reminds Timothy about the profession of faith that he made. Okay? Faith, love. Our weapons are weapons of love. Okay? We're, not to, we're not to hate our enemies in this world. Okay? Patience. It may mean patience. The word patience, you know, if you, uh, who has patience? Well, doctors have patience, well spelled different. But it is the same word. It is the same word, though. Patience means suffering. And so the King James often translates it long-suffering. Patience. That's, that's, that's one side of the coin for this word. Okay? But the other side is, is hupomone means, means uh, it's a military word, and it means uh, hold the line. Stand up. Stay there. We call it perseverance. Perseverance. Don't. Winston Churchill's famous speech encouraging the British people, the Second World War, never, ever, ever give up. Patience and gentleness, because when you're at war, you're in danger of losing that that virtue. Okay. We're not worldly soldiers, of course. We're spiritual soldiers. And gentleness has to be part of that. Pursue those things. They won't come naturally. You've got to pursue them. You've got to plan to attack them and capture them. The Christian soldier has to do battle with sin and all unrighteousness. He must flee from and avoid all conduct unworthy of an officer in the Lord's army. He must be faithful to his induction. Again, verse 12, fight the good fight of faith, lay hold on eternal life to which you 
were also called and have confessed. The Holy Spirit called and you confessed. Okay. The Holy Spirit called and you confessed. Okay. You've been called. Okay. With the external call of the gospel, we call it. And then we talk about the internal call of the Holy Spirit. Most people who hear the gospel externally don't even bother to try to understand it. They don't even listen to it. Okay. But those who do okay, have been called not only by the preacher, by the word of God, but they've been called by the Holy Spirit. Okay. That irresistible call of the Holy Spirit by which he actually changes the heart. Okay. He must be faithful, though, to his oath of allegiance, his confession. He must, above all, verse 11, lay hold, capture, lay siege to eternal life. Strive for it. But not the things of this world eternal life. It is so easy to get waylaid. Okay. But there's only one gospel. And the Apostle Paul says, whether I or an angel from heaven, Galatians chapter 1, preach to you a different gospel from the one that I preached. He's talking about angels now. <laughs> Let him be anathema. Damned. One gospel only. Okay. And then notice how Paul gives Timothy the great model for faithfulness. Verse 13, I urge you in the sight of God who gives life to all things and before Christ Jesus who witnessed the good confession. So he did it first. He witnessed the good confession before Pontius Pilate. He fulfilled the reason he came into this world before Pontius Pilate. Okay. That you keep this commandment without spot, blameless, until our Lord Jesus Christ's coming. Okay. The captain of our salvation has led the charge. He's led the way. We're just supposed to follow him. Okay. But we fight the good fight of faith. Jesus fought it first, and he fought it to the end, to his own death. And we're supposed to follow him to eternal victory. Secondly, okay, when you think of God's strategy for the church, as Paul has laid it out here, notice not only that we must fight the fight, the good fight of faith, but we must steadfastly hope in your commander's, in our commander's victory. We must steadfastly hope in our commander's victory. Look at verses 14 to 16. That you keep this commandment without spot, blameless, here it is now, until our Lord Jesus Christ's appearing, which he will manifest in his own time. He who is the blessed and only potentate, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, 
who alone has immortality, dwelling in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see. To him be honor and everlasting power. Amen. Steadfastly hope in your commander's victory. Bible hope, I use the word hope, I say hope, steadfastly hope, stubbornly hope. Bible hope is not pie in the sky, though. We often use the word hope, well, I hope that'll happen. We, We often use it about things that we imagine probably won't happen. But that's not the way the Bible uses the word hope. The Bible, the Bible's idea of hope is not pie in the sky. It's not hoping for what we doubt. It's being assured of what we have been promised in Christ. In a very real sense, because the Christian is already in Christ. Remember this from the epistle to these same people, the epistle to Ephesians. We are in Christ. How? We are seated with him in the heavenly places. The victory is his, and we're in him, and so the victory is ours, and we are more than conquerors. Through him, Paul says, Romans 8, 37. Okay. The Christian is already seated in the heavenly places, on the heavenly throne, with the victor king. Notice who that king is, verse 15. He is the blessed and only potentate. He is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. Charles III expects to be crowned the king of England in a few months. God help him if he doesn't come to realize that he is a mere bondservant to the king of kings. The only potentate. The only one with absolute authority. Christ is already on the throne. He's already ruling that way. And yet there's an even greater climax coming. Christ will appear. I know I'm jumping around with the verses here. The end of verse 14. Blameless until our Lord Jesus Christ's appearing. I like that Paul uses the word appearing instead of coming. We very commonly talk about the coming of Christ. And it is a coming. But in a sense, it is a coming of Christ as to his human nature, as to his human nature, he's not here. But as to his divine nature, he couldn't be more here. That's why the Bible says such odd things about Jesus being absent and about Jesus being present. Okay, And people who read it surfacely, who don't understand who Christ is, think it's a contradiction. It's not a contradiction. He's God. And he's present. And he's man in a body, in a place called heaven. And he's coming back. But Paul calls it an appearing. 
And appearing because, I think he uses the word appearing because he's already here in that, in, in, in a way that you can't see. But he's here. He's, there's not a thing that happens in this world that he's not ruling over. But he's going to appear. He's going to, our translation says, verse 15, he will manifest. He will show his friends and he will show his enemies that he is here. Okay. And he will manifest his righteousness and his power and his grace and his judgment when he comes. He will raise the dead. He will raise the righteous in glory. He will raise the wicked in ignominy and disgusting filth. He will judge angels and men. He will judge the living and the dead, the righteous and the unrighteous, and he will gather up his beloved saints in their glorified bodies and souls to be with him forever. That's what happens when he comes. And to those who have been given eyes to see, he will reveal himself as the one whom no mere man has or can or could or will ever see. No sinful man. No man in his natural state could see him. That's what, that's what he's talking about here. Verse 16, who alone has immortality, dwelling in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see, to whom be honor and everlasting power. Amen. The wicked cannot see and never will be able to see. Okay. What will we see? His blessedness, verse 15, back to that. He who is the blessed, and it's kind of inconvenient the way the verse numbers are here. If it was all one verse, I could, but it seems like I'm bouncing around verses, I know. Verse 15 there, he is the blessed. Okay. What does blessedness mean? It's the word from the Beatitudes, you know. Beat, uh, beatus in Latin means blessed. Okay. He is, he is blessed. It means, you know, when God blesses us, okay, there's the meaning of the word uh, benedic benediction is a blessing. Benedictus, benedicere, to well speak, to speak well. When God blesses us, he speaks well of those who don't deserve to be spoken well of. He blesses us. How then is Jesus on the throne of heaven blessed? Well, there's another sense of the word. It is this, this, this beatific word, this beatitude word. He is satisfied. I don't know if that strikes you as much of a statement or not. But man, I... I just sin against this all the time. He's happy with his rule. It's happening just the way he wants it. Just the way he wants it. Every single thing. Okay? 
the Putins and the Zelenskys and however you pronounce the guy in, 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 in China and Biden and all. Okay. And whether you feel good or feel bad or. He's happy. You can't, you can't ruffle him. Because <laughs> he's absolutely sovereign. Nothing happens. Okay? The king's heart is in the hands of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wants, like the rivers of water. <laughs> this world is not out of control. It's in rebellion. But it's not out of control. Not even a little. Okay? He is blessed. Behold, they said about him, even on earth, he does all things well, okay. his work on earth was perfectly accomplished and his work in heaven is continuing and it's perfect and he's satisfied with it. None of us will have any, any claim to be dissatisfied with it on that day. Not only is he blessed, but he has absolute power Back to verse 15, the only potentate, the king of kings and lord of lords, potentate, power, the power holder, the sovereign. Okay, But why does it say he's the only one? God the Father have power? See, potentate? God the Holy Spirit have power? Are they not all three persons omnipotent, potate, omnipotent, omnipotent, all powerful, all mighty? He is the only creature. He's the only potentate. Kings and rulers, Putins and presidents, and all the rest of them think they have power. <laughs> There's only one potentate. And it's Jesus Christ. He is immortal. Look at verse 16. Who alone has immortality. Immortality is what we call an incommunicable or non-communicable attribute of God. See, God has various attributes. Okay, Various characteristics, we say. And some of those are communicable, meaning he shares them with us. Rationality. God is the word. He's rational. That's what logos means. Rationality. And he shares it with us. Well, we don't have it the way he has it because he's omniscience. Okay, omniscient. He knows all things, but we know some things. He allows us. He shares that ability to know with us. It is a communicable attribute of God. Immortality okay, does not mean we'll never die. One who is immortal is not one who will never die. It is one who cannot die, who is incapable of dying. You, you, you hear 
people who flunk theology 101 say, God can do anything. God cannot do anything. Okay. The word of God says, quote, he cannot deny himself. There are lots of things God can't do. He, 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 he can't make a, an object too heavy to lift. For the fundamental philosophical reason that that's dumb. Of course you can't make a round square. It's dumb. It's dumb. You're playing with words. But God, he can't lie, for example. Okay. And he can't die. God can't die. God did not die on the cross. He didn't even suffer. I know that doesn't go with contemporary music especially, which is all gushy. God can't suffer unless he's not God anymore. You can't have it both ways. He's either the God-man or he isn't. That's an ancient heresy that God turned into a man. He didn't turn into a man. God took a human nature. And in that nature, he suffered and died. But not in his divine nature. You can't drive a nail through God. You can't. Okay. And God did not hate his son on the cross. None of that nonsense. Father allowed Jesus Christ as to his human nature to suffer and die and bear the guilt of sin. But God loved his son. Don't you ever think that God stopped loving his son. Don't ever think that. This, this world would just implode if the Trinity went to war. It can't happen. Jesus Christ is immortal as to his deity, as to his divine nature. He cannot die. He cannot change. He is immutable. He is infinite. He has that attribute that we call aseity. A-S-E-I-T-Y. Comes from two Latin words. A, letter A, and the second word is S-E. And it's the same word. We get our word S-E-L-F from it. S-E means self. He is a He is of himself. And he can't be touched. And he cannot die. Immortality is a divine attribute and it is incommunicable. Creatures can die. Okay. Even angels can die. Okay. And that's why it says here in verse 16, who alone has immortality. He's the only one 
okay, because of this union of those two natures in one person, the Theanthropus, the God-man. It's, I agree, almost, not quite, jot and tittle, not that I'm worthy to disagree with the Westminster Confession and the wisdom and knowledge and understanding of those guys. But there are one or two things that I don't like. Uh, I'm even afraid to call it an error because I can't believe that my forefathers at Westminster, I, I, I just, I, I, I don't know why they said what they said, but it says in there that we have immortal souls and we do not have immortal souls. We don't have immortal souls. For my body and soul to die, all God has to do is nothing. Just let me die. I only exist because he keeps me existing. Every creature, even the devil. It's God's devil. Chew on that one for a while. You think, you think God can't blow the devil out of existence? That devil is serving God. I'll talk about that some other day, but that devil is serving. He doesn't want to, but he is serving God. Immortality. It cannot be shared with us as that incommunicable attribute, that inability to die. But the Apostle Paul says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the great resurrection chapter. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 53. He says, For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. We do not have, and that's where I disagree with the confession, I tend to just say it's infelicitous language. I wish they hadn't said it that way. I know that the Westminster divides didn't think that human beings or any creatures have the attribute of immortality. I know they can't possibly have thought that. There's it's some other reason. I don't know what it is. Okay, but we human beings do not have. And just if you just stick with the words, he alone has immortality. It belongs to him. He owns it. He has it. But the saints will be clothed with it. We must put on immortality. See that? We put on immortality. You know, the funny thing sometimes that people just don't, just don't look at the words long enough. You know, uh, the Word of God, the New Testament says that we will partake of the divine nature. Oh, and so all the Looney Tunes run off. Joseph Smith, we're going to be gods. We're going to partake of the divine nature. And as I think it was Jay Adams once said, 
if I part, he didn't, I don't know what, what article of food he used. If I partake of a hot dog, I don't become a hot dog. <laughs> and I partake of the divine nature, but I don't become God. You just have to be careful with the, with the words. We will put on immortality, but he alone has immortality. In him was life, and in him is life. And he gives life, verse 13. He gives life to all things. Life is his. It belongs to him. But we will live forever. So we have, I would not say immortal souls. We have everlasting souls. They will live forever. Because... One reason only, not because of the nature of our souls, okay, we're not talking Greek philosophy here, okay, but because of the nature of Christ who keeps his promises. So what's the big picture here? Well, here's the big picture. If you look at that verse 16, who alone has immortality, dwelling in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see, to whom be honor and everlasting power. Amen. And I just say, how could any rational person read that verse and fail to see that Jesus is God? I don't think there are 10% of the seminaries in this country that teach that Jesus is God incarnate. He alone has immortality. He dwells in unapproachable light. The Shekinah is just a shadow <laughs> compared to him. You can't see through the shadow. Okay. He is invisible. In his divine nature, God hath not a body like man. Okay. But he can, and he has, and he will manifest his appearance, his presence, his glorious person. He will manifest that to his beloved saints and to his angels. That's what Jesus meant when he said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for they shall see God. Not with the eyes of the flesh. You can't see God with the eyes of the flesh. But with the eyes of the, per the perfected soul, the pure soul, what we call the beatific vision. The vision of which satisfies when we see Christ, we will be perfectly glorified. Body and soul. On that great day, the end of verse 16, honor and everlasting power will be given to him. It's already his, but it will be given to him. It'll be admitted, not only by his friends, but by his enemies, publicly. And forever, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. 
He will be honored in love by his saints and his holy angels. And he will be honored in horror by his enemies, by wicked men and wicked angels. The man of God must keep that hope. The whole purpose here is to remember the purpose there is what Paul is saying. The shape of the church is it is on pilgrimage to heaven. And that's why Paul keeps saying, lay hold on eternal life. Okay? No matter how gruesome the battle may be. Okay? But there's only one gospel, no other. It's not a social gospel. It's not a prosperity gospel. It is a redemptive Gospel. It is the gospel of Christ. Thirdly, I want you to notice, not only must we fight the fight of the good fight of faith and steadfastly hope in our commander's victory, but we must fearlessly pass on the great commander's orders. Look at verses 17 to 19. You might, you might wonder, what, what, is this kind of random? Okay. Command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty, nor to trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who gives us richly all things to enjoy. Every single thing that you will enjoy, you have. He's promised. Oh, well, you need to be richer. No, you don't. You need to be healthier, stronger. Whatever. No, you don't. He's given you all things richly to enjoy. Let them do good that they be rich in good works, ready to give, willing to share. Whatever we have, it's a stewardship. We dare not use it for anything but the master. Storing up for themselves a good foundation for the time to come that they may lay hold, here it is again, on eternal life. That's the danger of riches, to lay hold on mammon, to lay hold on stuff. And Paul is simply reminding Timothy, it's not random, that this is the church militant, and you are an officer in the church militant, and you must fearlessly pass on to those in the church who may not like it. Preachers always have to preach things that sinful Christians don't like. He has to pass on those commands. Did they have a particular problem in the Ephesian church with the wealthy? I, I imagine probably because he mentions it so often in the letter. I'm, but he doesn't say that, so uh, I can't say for sure. And, it's a, and certainly the Bible warns about the wealthy Easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. Okay. Wealth is a, is a huge temptation. Okay. But he's, the, the, the issue here is Paul wants Timothy to remember that he is to pass on the orders, the commands of the commander, of the general, so to speak. No matter what, whether a man will hear it or not, whether he'll be offended or not, the good soldier of Christ, the man of God... The faithful pastor and preacher must preach the whole counsel of God. He must preach the gospel, and he must preach sanctification. He must preach 
and love the law of God, the commandments of our commander. He must constantly remind his congregation, poor and rich, that their actions and their attitudes, every single thing that we do, every single thing that we desire. Because that's where sin starts. It's what we desire that's wrong. Our actions and our attitudes today will have eternal consequences we are storing up for eternity. And that great book of Revelation reminds us our works do follow us. And don't let anybody tell you otherwise. Revelation chapter 14 and verse 13. Our works do follow us. They have an effect for all eternity. First of all, it is our works that will show whether we have true faith or not. Our works won't merit our works won't merit us anything, and our faith won't merit us anything. Christ merits every everything. Okay. Our works follow us because we will be judged according to our works. We must all stand, the Apostle Paul says, before the throne of Christ to be judged for the things done in the body. Antinomians have simply not read their Bibles, and that's the best we can say of them, because it might be worse than that. Okay. Works count. We store up for eternity. And the damned, every single wicked thing they do, they will regret. Every single one for all eternity. And the blessed, every single, every single act of love and devotion to Christ and to his followers for his sake, even if it's a cup of cold water, will follow us for all eternity. In blessing. You see. Finally, then, God's strategy for the church, fight the good fight of faith, steadfastly hope in your commander's victory, fearlessly pass on the great commander's orders, and finally, guard the precious trust. Verses 20 and 21. O Timothy, guard what was committed to your trust, avoiding the profane and idle babblings and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge by professing it some of strayed concerning the faith. faith. Grace be with you. Amen. Guard the precious trust. What has been entrusted to the Lord's army, to his church militant? What do they fight for? What do they fight with? Men and nations go to war for all kinds of things. They go to war for power. They go to war for wealth. They go to war for land. Occasionally, they even go to war for freedom. But Christ's army goes to war for eternal life. We've got to remember that. Paul wouldn't have to repeat it so often in this letter, over and over and over again, not to be waylaid by issues in this world. Okay. 
The definition of Christianity is the gospel. It's not something else. And so the Christian soldier's goal is to give honor and glory to Christ. And our great trust, our great weapon, this is what I believe Paul is talking about here. Okay. Notice that. What was committed to your trust? What's he talking about? Guard what was committed to your trust, avoiding the profane and idle babblings and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge by professing it some of stray concerning the faith. And he ends rather abruptly here. I don't know why, neither does anybody else. Okay. But what is this thing committed? What's the opposite of the profane and idle babblings and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge? The great trust is the sword of the Spirit. It is the Word of God. It is God's truth. The church is the pillar and foundation. Remember he said that? It holds up the Word of God. God's truth for all the world to see. The thing that Christians strive for is not political clout. It's not comfort in this world. It's the honor and the glory of Christ and our weapons are spiritual and it is primarily the word of God. The church is the keeper of the gospel of Christ, the way of salvation. The man of God must avoid it. He must avoid all man-made doctrines, no matter how attractive they may look. Compared to the doctrines of the Holy Bible, they are mere, verse 20, idle babblings. Contradictions. This person says this, that person says that. You can bury yourself in it. Okay. They're useful, useless, Paul says, for eternal life. Being, being plunged into those extraneous things. The church has a spiritual mission. It's a spiritual mission. It is the gospel. Okay. Some, Paul warns in verse 21, they've got so interested in these other things that they've actually left the true faith. That's how, that's how churches turn from the gospel. The United Presbyterian Church got taken up with Angela Davis and, and all the social justice issues And what they negotiated was the gospel. That's what they negotiated. And they left the faith. The man of God, Paul says, must guard. He must protect. He must defend. He must proclaim the only infallible truth once for all delivered. The whole counsel of God. The written word of God. And according to Paul, that is to be the shape of the church. Let's pray. Dear Lord Jesus Christ, the church is yours and we are yours. Oh, we pray that you would forgive us for the times when we wander from your strategy, from your goal. Lord, how we pray that you would cause us simply to be faithful to you, that we would understand particularly this book of your Bible about what the church ought to look like and help us 
to seek to look that way. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.